Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. You understand, if, if that one statement by Jesus is not true, then what we believe as Christians means nothing. But if that statement by Jesus is true, then what we believe as Christians means everything. Because if that one statement by Jesus cannot be trusted, then nothing he said can be trusted because in that one statement he is claiming to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the Creator God. And yet if it is true, well then we have no choice but to believe everything that he said. Why? Because he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of the Creator God. You see, it's, it's all or nothing. There's no middle ground with Jesus. No, what he demands from us is simply everything or nothing at all. C.S. Lewis said it this way, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Okay, when, when Jesus made that statement about himself in John 14, he was telling his disciples in no uncertain terms that he would either be everything to them or nothing to them. And the choice was theirs to make and to be sure. Whatever choice they made, that would affect their future and indeed their eternity. And so you either believe everything that Jesus said or you might as well not believe any of it. Because listen, you may be able to live somewhere in the middle of that for a period of time. But eventually your life in this world, not to mention Jesus Christ himself, will not permit you to be half in and half out when it comes to what Jesus said, to what he taught. At some point, you have to choose whether you're all in or you're all out. And that's just what happens with people every day, isn't it? People who try to, uh, to straddle that fence, as we say, or who try to live in both worlds, eventually they find themselves at a crossroads in their lives, and inevitably they make that choice one way or the other. Because again, Jesus won't let you live for him halfway. You hear me? He won't let you live there for long. In fact, he said, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 33, he said, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Revelation 3, 16. You see, his word is crystal clear on the matter, which is exactly why a lot of people leave the church and indeed the faith. Because you cannot remain under God's word when you don't believe it. Not for long. Right? Because what Jesus said is far too convicting. It is far too demanding. It is far too risky. The cost is far too high to follow something as dangerous as the gospel if you don't truly believe it, which we're going to see in our story today as we continue working our way through the gospel according to Mark, where Jesus was trying to prepare his disciples for his coming departure, just as he was in this passage we read in John. And so telling them who he really was is something you would expect him to say. However, 
what is so peculiar about this passage is not what he says, but when he says it, given his audience, because he's not speaking to the crowds at this point. You understand, he's talking to his disciples as he's nearing the end of his journey on this earth. And so he's explaining to his own disciples that he is the way and the truth and the life. And he says that after the Last Supper and just before his arrest and crucifixion, which means at this point, when he says this, these disciples have already been with him now for three years. Three solid years of watching Jesus heal untold numbers of people, cast out legions of demons, command the weather, walk on water, feed thousands of people with a basket full of bread and fish twice. And yet he starts out this passage in John. After all of that, with let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God. Believe also in me, John 14, 1. What? Really? Why in the world does Jesus have to say, believe in God, believe also in me to his own disciples after they've been with him for years? You see, it's because he's trying to prepare them for what was coming. It was something they'd never experienced before, which is exactly what he's trying to prepare us for in the story that we're going to read today. Because look, those disciples' lives dramatically changed after Jesus ascended to heaven. They were hunted, imprisoned. They were killed by government officials. They were constantly ridiculed by the culture around them. They were mocked and beaten and tortured in the most horrendous ways, and many killed by the religious Jews and even followers of other religions as well. Everywhere they went, outside of the church, they were targets. Yet every single one of them, save one, stood firm in their faith and testimony to the very end. But listen, you won't be able to do that in your own life with a couple of verses of Scripture in your pocket and a lukewarm faith in Jesus. Not when actual hard times come, which Jesus promised us are coming, as we'll see. The fact is, when the whole world outside of the church comes against you, You'd better have a red-hot faith in Christ and an unshakable belief in every single word Jesus said, or you will not make it. You will not endure to the end. Listen, I know we probably already believe that we have that part handled, right? We, we think <clears throat> that we're solid when it comes to believing everything that Jesus said, right? We say it all the time. The Bible is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. We say we, we believe that. But in Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said, you cannot love God and money. And of course, we say we love God, but boy, we, we sure do love our money. In the very next verse, Jesus said, we're not to worry about our lives, yet we worry about our lives every day. In Matthew 25, 41 through 46, Jesus said, if you don't serve the poor and suffering, not only will you not make it into heaven, he says, you will be sent to hell. Now, if we honestly believe that, would we continue to live our lives the same way we're living them now? Matthew twenty two thirty nine. 39, he said, love your neighbor the same way you love yourself. Can you honestly say you do that? Matthew 5, 11, he said, you're blessed when you're persecuted. 
And yet all that most of us do when we're insulted, let alone persecuted, is rant and complain and fight back. You understand in John 15, 19, Jesus said the world will hate you, hate you. And then he takes it a step further in John uh, Luke 6, 22, where he says, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward in heaven is great. Truthfully, is that how we, we live our lives today? And listen, I'm not... Uh, I'm not trying to make you feel bad because I'll just tell you after studying for this sermon all week, I feel bad enough for all of us put together. I'm simply asking you to be honest with yourself and ask yourself whether or not you really do believe everything that Jesus said. Because look, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not convinced that we do. Because if we did, I think most of our lives would look very different than they do now. By the way, based on what he says is coming our way, as we'll see in a moment, we're never going to make it if we don't believe in and act upon every single word of what Jesus said. And, and, and uh, you understand, I'm not talking about us being perfect in this life. That isn't happening, this side of heaven, not at all. I'm simply talking about believing, honestly believing and acting upon everything that Jesus taught, not just the popular parts, because if we do believe Everything that Jesus said, although our lives still won't be perfect because we're all human beings, they will certainly reflect that faith, that belief in what he said in how we're living our lives every single day, which I'm telling you is going to become absolutely necessary in the days that are to come, according to Jesus which is the point of this story today. So let's pick the story back up where we left off last time. We're going to take a long, hard look today and next week, or the next time we share, at just actually what Jesus said about our future, about what is coming our way, and whether or not we're actually ready for it. It's a two-part uh, two sermon. So today we're going to be covering the first half of the chapter. So let's turn to Mark chapter 13, and we're going to start by reading the first two verses. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The Jewish temple was built by King Solomon in the 10th century B.C. and then destroyed by uh, the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar in 587 B.C. And then it was rebuilt by Zerubbabel and Ezra which was completed about 516 B.C. And then close to 500 years later, in 19 B.C., Herod the Great began to remodel and expand the temple over a period of 80 years so that by the first century A.D., by Jesus' time on earth, it was already twice the size that it had been under Solomon, exceeding even the size and beauty of most of the seven wonders of the ancient world. In fact, uh, the entire temple complex covered 35 acres. You can imagine, more than twice the size of the Acropolis in Athens with just the enclosed portion of the temple alone comprising a sixth of the area of the entire city. Just one of the unearthed, unearthed stones that we have of the temple measures 45 feet by 11 and a half feet 
by 12 feet, weighs over 570 tons. That's over a million pounds per stone. Well, the first century uh, Jewish historian Flavius Josephus describes some of the stones as actually being over 60 feet long, 11 feet high, and 8 feet deep. He also wrote that the temple was covered on the outside with gold plates that were so brilliant that when the sun was shining on it, it was blinding. And where there wasn't gold, there were blocks of marble that were such pure white that from a distance, strangers thought there was snow on the temple. Without a doubt, this was a magnificent structure. And so it's not hard to understand why his disciples were commenting on the beauty of it. And of course, Jesus could have easily said, yep, it sure is beautiful, and he wouldn't have been wrong. But instead, he says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Forty years after he said that, there was an uprising among the Jews against the Romans in Palestine, and although the Jews experienced some early successes in battle, the Romans eventually took control with the Roman Emperor Vespasian ultimately sending in his son Titus to crush the rebellion in Jerusalem. Josephus records what happens next. He says, Now as soon as the army had no more people to kill or plunder, Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple. This was the end to which Jerusalem came to. The Jews who remained in the city then retreated into the temple because it was the safest structure in the city. And so in response, the Romans set it on fire. History actually says a drunken soldier set it on fire, which engulfed the entire building, melting all of the gold, which ran down into the cracks between the stones. And so in order to retrieve the gold, the Roman commander ordered the temple to be dismantled stone by stone. The destruction was so complete that today researchers actually still struggle to precisely locate the exact positioning of the temple. Jesus could have easily remarked about the beauty of the temple that day, and he wouldn't have been wrong. But instead, he said something that actually was uh, not so much for their benefit then as it is for ours today. Because look, Jesus died, was buried, resurrected, and ascended to heaven long before the destruction of the temple. And by that point, the disciples were already planting churches, radically preaching the gospel and following Jesus's every word. They didn't really need any more proof at that point that Jesus was the way and the truth and the life. They already believed that and were living it out daily by the time the temple was destroyed. So, so why bother telling them that? Well, it's because he knew that we would need to hear it today, which is why I believe he was speaking to us now as, at least as much as he was to them then when he made these statements and the ones that follow, which he actually makes quite clear a little further on in this chapter, as we'll see. So this, this perfectly, uncannily accurate uh, statement by Jesus about the coming destruction of the temple is yet one more proof that he is in fact the way and the truth in the life. Our Bible scholar and pastor R.C. Sproul commenting on these two verses said, if any text should prove Jesus's claim of divinity, it is this one. He clearly prophesied the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem, along with numerous accompanying events years before they happened. This text is the most powerful apologetic we have for Christology and for the scriptures. The fact is, even secular scholars concede that Jesus' prophecies about the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem proved to be astonishingly accurate. 
Okay, Jesus could have commented on the beauty of the building that day, but he didn't because Jesus said what we need to hear, not what we want to hear. He always said what we needed to hear, not what we wanted to hear. And I'm telling you, if there was ever a battleground for the soul of biblical preaching today, this is it. The battle between preaching what people want to hear and what they need to hear. Listen, uh, this isn't a cultural battle. This isn't a generational battle. It is, in fact, not a human battle at all. This is a spiritual battle. The Apostle Paul warned Timothy all the way back in the first century. He said, the time is coming when people will not endorse sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I'm telling you that time has come. We are there right now in the modern church today. We say that we believe everything that Jesus said, but I wonder sometimes if we compiled a list of some of the more difficult sayings of Jesus and put those in modern vernacular and then read those statements to professing believers without telling them that they came from Jesus or the Bible, I wonder how many of those statements Christians would actually disagree with. I believe we'd be surprised at just how common that would actually be. And I say that because as a pastor, I work with people every single day who are in difficult situations in their lives, people who are unhappy about the way things are going, and most of those people are professing Christians. And listen, uh, all I do is biblical counseling. I'm not a psychologist. So when people come to me with a problem that needs solving or a complaint that needs addressing, all I can offer them is what God says in His Word about how to deal with that problem or that issue. And so that's exactly what I do. I'm telling you, it is stunning how many Christians reject what the God-breathed scriptures say. They may smile and nod their head and say, thank you, but at the end of the day, the percentage of Christians who actually refuse to do what God's word clearly says, it is nothing short of stunning. Well, why? Why, why don't they do what the Bible says? It's because they don't believe what it says. They say they do, but their lives don't reflect that claim. And look, you can get away with living that way for a period of time until it wrecks your marriage, until it ruins other relationships in your life. Or maybe it leads you into idolatry or addiction or bitterness or unforgiveness or disillusionment or lack of faith or simply the hardening of your heart toward Christ and his word until you turn away from listening to the truth and you wander off into myths. Happens all the time in the routine course of people's lives, this gradual wandering off of people's hearts and minds away from Christ and his word until they leave the faith altogether. And of course we know uh, listen, Jesus never promised us an easy life. Quite the opposite. But I think if we're being honest, the vast majority of our problems in this life are self-inflicted. The plain and yet powerful truth is if we would simply heed his word in every area of our lives because we believed it to be true, then most of what we struggle with would probably be resolved. Think about whatever it is, whatever it is you're struggling with today. If you actually put God and other people before yourself, 
no matter how counterintuitive that seems to be in this moment, whatever you're struggling with, if you actually just said, you know what, I'm putting God in those people I can't stand, those people who've rubbed me the wrong way, those people who are insulting me or persecuting me or hurting me, these people that are in the way of where I am right now in my life and where I know God wants me to be, but I'm going to put God and them first. How much of those struggles in your life will go away? If you started chasing after him more than you chase after money and material things, how many of your issues would go away? If you stopped worrying about your circumstances just as Jesus said you could and should because he promised he would take care of you, how much better would your life be? What if you rejected, or rejoiced, excuse me, and, and considered yourself, think about it, if you rejoiced and considered yourself blessed, Every time someone insulted you or offended you or tried to hurt you and all you're doing is trying to live your life for Jesus. If every time that happened, you considered yourself blessed, how many of your problems would turn into blessings? And listen, all of that is just what we deal with in the routine course of life with its inherent difficulties and struggles, so many that we so often manufacture in our own lives. What happens when real persecution comes from the outside in? What are we going to do then? What happens when the world outside of the church turns wholesale against the church? What happens when following Christ becomes unacceptable, illegal, life-threatening? Because Jesus promised us it would. And in fact, it already has for Christians all over the world. So what do we do? What do we do when that day arrives on our doorstep? Let's see what Jesus says, verses 3 through 13. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. When they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So Jesus and his disciples leave the temple. They cross over the Kidron Valley and ascend the Mount of Olives where there was a dramatic view of the Temple Mount. And gazing back on that temple that he just said was going to be destroyed, some of his disciples ask him when this prophecy will be fulfilled and what the signs will be when that is about to happen. Jesus begins what is known as the Olivet Discourse. It's the longest sustained teaching of Christ recorded in the Gospel of Mark. And in it, as he so often did, Jesus addresses not only this event, 
concerning uh, the temple and his disciples in the first century, but he also addresses his disciples in every century leading up to the second coming, and particularly those, he says, who are living in the last days, which we'll see more of next time. And what he describes here is really the state of the world today. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. Well, you can, you can check that off the box, right? Leading many astray. When you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Well, you can check that box. This must take place, but the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. You can check that box. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. You can check those boxes. And then he describes all of that as the beginning of the birth pains. So you understand it's not the end of the age. It's the last days that precede the end of the age, which I believe we are clearly living in today. Those last days before the end. Well, what about the part where he says, they'll deliver you over to councils and you'll be beaten in synagogues and stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel has to first be proclaimed to all nations that brother will deliver brother over to death and a father is child and the children against the parents will have them put to death and you'll be hated for my name's sake, right? What about all that? Because we don't seem to be experiencing that today. Well, that's right. Not here in America. Not yet. But listen, David Gusick, because he says, if you're part of an Orthodox Jewish family today and you become a Christian, you may well be labeled a blasphemer and excommunicated from your family. If you're part of a strict Muslim family today and you become a Christian, you very well may be rejected by your family, your community, and possibly killed for your faith. If you're part of a Hindu family in India today and you become a Christian, you will quite possibly be rejected by your family and your community and maybe even killed for your faith. If you're Chinese today and you become a Christian in that country, you're only allowed to practice your faith in a state-sponsored church. That is, if you're not persecuted first and your church isn't destroyed or permanently shut down as over 1,500 have been in just the last 20 years. In Sudan, you might be killed or literally enslaved by a Muslim army for being a Christian. In Indonesia, if you become a Christian, you may be given a choice to convert to Islam or die, or you just may have your church bombed during a worship service. And in Pakistan, there is a very good chance you'll be thrown in prison by government officials for becoming a Christian. According to David B. Barrett in his book, Today's Martyrs, some 165,000 Christians died for their faith in the year 2000 alone, while researchers estimate that since the day of Pentecost, 43 million Christians have been killed for their faith. I think it is clear that Jesus was addressing not only his disciples then and the destruction of the temple in AD 70, which we'll talk more about in a moment, but he was also addressing his disciples today. And just in case you need more convincing in the second half of this Olivet Discourse, which we'll cover next time, Jesus openly discusses how all of this ties into his second coming, which obviously hasn't happened yet. And so the further you go on in this teaching, as we'll see, the clearer it becomes that Jesus said, we are living in the last days. In other words, this isn't a dress rehearsal. Now, we are right now living in the very days Jesus was describing back then. But, but if you don't believe that, then you won't live with any sense of urgency whatsoever concerning the gospel and your personal responsibility to spread that gospel at all costs to yourself 
and to your family, which perfectly describes the American church today, where through our prosperity, which honestly I'm still not sure is a blessing or a curse, we have been lulled to sleep. Even though Jesus said we're to live with a sense of urgency concerning these last days that we're living in. The church has fallen asleep. And listen, it's time to wake up from our spiritual slumber because we cannot claim to believe what Jesus said and at the same time be apathetic about those who have yet to meet him. So if we, if we truly believe Jesus, if we truly believe him when he said, I am the way, and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father, no one, except through me. If we really do believe that, then why isn't the vast majority of our time and energy and resources and talent and effort directed at spreading the gospel, at telling people about Jesus? Right? What excuse can we possibly offer that would justify the fact that most of us spend vastly greater amounts of time and energy trying to secure our own retirement plans than we do on securing God's eternal plan for those who are still lost without Him? Because look, if what Jesus said is true, then our time on this earth is growing short. And yet there are a lot of people all around us who are dying and going to hell. What, would, what could we possibly be saving for that's more important than saving human souls? What excuse will we give when the end of days comes and we give an account for how we lived our lives in these last days? What excuse will be good enough for the fact that we didn't tell people about Jesus, everyone that we could, before it was too late? What excuse is good enough that it made me feel uncomfortable? That's not good enough. That I was too busy with life. That's not good enough. That evangelism wasn't my calling. No, that's not good enough. That I couldn't handle the rejection. That isn't good enough. That I didn't feel spiritually qualified. I wasn't a good enough Christian to tell people about Jesus. No, that is not good enough. That it was going to put me and my family at risk. I'm sorry. Not even that is good enough. You see, the fact is there will never be an excuse good enough to excuse our failure to spread the gospel with urgency in these last days. But there will be at least an answer. There will be an answer that we can give that is honest about why we didn't do more to share Christ with others. Because we didn't believe everything that he said. Even though everything that he said was preparing us for this hour, these last days that we're living in. Let's finish the story for today, verses 14 through 23. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to, his, uh, to take his cloak." And alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, 
Pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. So as Jesus continues to teach them and us, of course, about what is to come, he uses a phrase that shows up in other places, both in biblical literature and other historical literature that is not biblical, but it is related to biblical events. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The obvious question being, what is the abomination of desolation that seems to trigger this time of tribulation, uh, even for believers, he says. Well, some scholars say it's the event that's referred to back in Daniel 9.27, 11.31, and again in 12.11, and also in the non-biblical 1 Maccabees 1.54, where the same phrase is used each time to describe Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, the Syrian general uh, erecting a statue of Zeus on the altar, a burnt offering in the Jewish temple, and then sacrificing a pig on that same altar in 168 BC, which triggered the Jewish uprising known as the Maccabean Revolt. And yet, according to Josephus, uh, also I was reading Philo of Alexandria, the first century a B.C. philosopher, also Tacitus, the first century A.D. Roman historian. We see similar desecrations, according to these men of the altar, uh, in 63 B.C. by the Roman general Pompey, who conquered the city and entered the Holy of Holies. And then again in A.D. 26 and 27 by the governor Pilate, who brought idolatrous standards into the city. And then in A.D. 40, when the emperor Caligula tried to erect his own statue in the temple. And then when the zealots took control of the temple during the Jewish rebellion between A.D. 66 and A.D. 70. And then, of course, in A.D. 70, when Titus entered the Holy of Holies, removing various items, taking them back to Rome to show them off to his friends, and then destroying the temple itself, which Jesus uh, was clearly prophesying about here. In fact, when he says, when you see the, the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Listen, the, uh, the Christian community took that to heart and fled the city when Titus entered it, and not a single Christian was recorded as being lost in the siege of Jerusalem, while 1.1 million Jews who stayed in the city were slaughtered. Okay, so it certainly seems obvious that Jesus is referring to this event in A.D. 70, but what about all the others before it, where the temple was equally defiled? Well, I think the answer is, it's all of the above and then some. Because the spirit of the Antichrist has been operating in this world all along. And so all of these events are valid examples of what Jesus is teaching about. And yet they all also point to something or someone even further into the future when this age-old battle between good and evil comes to its final culmination. In other words, all of these ancient events point to a future event. Just as there are countless events in the Old Testament that point to the Christ and his atoning sacrifice on the cross in the New Testament. And I say that for two reasons. One, because again, in the second half of this chapter, uh, Jesus is very clearly talking about 
his second coming, uh, which hasn't happened yet, right? But also because in this half of the chapter that we're studying today, he gives us a clue that he's referring to something in the future still. And I'm going to get uh, really nerdy here for a second, so stay with me, okay? When you read this statement by Jesus, in the original Greek, uh, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, the word abomination is neuter. It means neutral or without gender, and yet the participle standing in that sentence, contrary to proper grammar in the Greek, is definitively masculine. And so the use of a masculine participle to modify a neuter noun dramatically suggests that Jesus was referring to a person, not an event. He was referring to a man, right? Which is further confirmed, confirmed of course, by the fact that he, he continues to say as much. He says, the abomination of desolation will be standing where he ought not to be. So clearly he's talking about a person, a specific person. And when you couple that with Paul's writing in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12, where he describes these very same events that Jesus is talking about here in Mark, we find Paul describing a person, someone he refers to as the man of lawlessness, otherwise known as the Antichrist of the end times. And so it all ties in, again, with the second half of this chapter, which we'll get to next time, the point being, Jesus was likely drawing on all of these previous events and the coming destruction of the temple ultimately to point us to the last days and his second coming that he's clearly describing in the last part of this discourse. And yet right here in the middle of all of that, he issues a warning that we do well to take note of. In verse 23, he says, be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. In other words, in these last days that you will be living in, things are going to get harder for you. And so Jesus said, get ready. And of course, the question that we all need to be asking ourselves today is, am I ready? Am I ready to be hated by the world because of my love for Christ? Or am I going to leave the church and shrink back in that day? Am I ready to be persecuted for my faith? Am I ready to be told to shut my mouth for what I believe? Am I ready to suffer for the gospel? Or will I shrink back when that day comes and simply just try to blend in? Jesus said, I've told you all things beforehand. Why? Because he wants us to be ready. No surprises. And I'll just tell you, being ready doesn't mean beans and bullets and bunkers. It's fine to prepare for lean times, but Jesus never called us to live in fear or to isolate ourselves from others. No, he called us to live in community with others and to rejoice when we're persecuted, even unto death if need be, laying our lives down for the sake of the gospel and our brothers and sisters in Christ. Being ready means being armed, yes, with the gospel. It means being in full supply of compassion and sacrificial love and most of all the truth of God's word. And it means being willing to fearlessly speak that truth even if it costs us our lives, even if it puts us and our families in harm's way, even if it means giving up all that we have, we're to be ready to lay it all down, everything for the sake of Christ and his gospel. Yet you absolutely will not do that when hard times come if you don't believe everything 
that he said. Because he said he would take care of you. That he would provide for you. That he would give you what you need when you need it in that moment, no matter how hard it gets. He said he would tell you what to say. When the time comes for you to defend your faith, even in the face of great persecution, that you don't have to worry about your life because he has you well in hand. He said you can trust him in all things, no matter how dire your circumstances seem to be, that you can rely on him to be your source and your supply. He said that he's more than enough to meet every single need in your life and then some. In fact, Jesus said he is the way and the truth and the life. Listen, if that is true, then what else could we possibly ever need but Jesus? You see, the question isn't whether or not Jesus is enough for you to face tomorrow, no matter what tomorrow brings. Now, the question is whether or not you believe it. Let's pray.